Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Good morning. It's a great opportunity to be here. I appreciate the opportunity I get when I come here to Edgewood to speak, and uh, I appreciate the chance to be of service to both Matt and John. Um, I was thinking about the testimony time, and I hear a lot about the final four, and uh, I'm kind of like charity in the sense that uh, I have a problem knowing what I should testify about and what I shouldn't testify about, because some things I get kind of in trouble, and I go, you know, whatever. But I'm just happy that Kentucky and Duke are neither one in the final four. Praise the Lord for that. I thought I'd get a round of applause on that one, too. I don't know. I don't know. Um, You know, as I start thinking about my life, and quite honestly, as I speak this morning, I want to be very clear to you all this morning, I am not preaching at anybody or speaking to anybody. I am, more than anybody else, I'm speaking to myself. Um, So as I talk, I am not an expert. I am a renowned repeat offender and failure on on the subject that I'm about to speak on. That being said, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 has been a conviction to my heart for probably about the last month. And when, uh, when I was given the opportunity to speak this morning, I was like, well, I, I guess I know what I'm speaking on. The moment, the moment that the opportunity came up, the Lord has been hitting me on this and hitting me on this. And I'll just, Matt can attest to this probably, that when you start getting hit repeatedly with something and then it's time to speak, you don't get a choice at that moment what to speak on. It's just like, this is what it's going to be because this is what the Lord is working on your heart with and it's pretty much all-encompassing. I look at Psalm 91, and uh, I'm going to read from the King James Version. Uh, I, I know that a lot of us probably have ESV, or my favorite is Holman, and there's lots of different versions out there, but I'm going to read from the, from the King James. I'm going to read the entire psalm, okay? So just bear with me as I read all the way from the beginning to the end of Psalm number 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord... He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for thy terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet, because he hath set his love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him, I will set him on high, Because he hath known my name, he shall call upon me, 
and I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I ask that as we come before your presence and as we try to discern your will in your place for us, that you would put your hand and your Holy Spirit on us today. Lord, I ask that you would mark my words and that you would make me the voice that I ought to be so that those who need to hear can hear. Lord, it is all of your strength and your power that we do this in. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to be clear that as we look at this psalm, Psalm number 91 is actually talking to believers. So as you think of this in context, I want you to understand who it's being spoken to. This is a psalm that's talking to a saved, regenerate person who knows God, has a relationship with him, and is being challenged to take an extra step in his life. Now I look at this, and it's an interesting thing, because have you ever seen that meme? You know that meme that says, uh, this is is what my friends think I do. This This is what my mom thinks I do. Uh, this is what I really do, and usually what you really do is something really boring. What your mom thinks you do is something really exciting. What your friends think you do is something really ludicrous. I mean, that's usually the way that that meme works. I look at this psalm, and I think I've heard interpretations of it. I like what people think this psalm means, you know, and then there's what this psalm actually really means, and then, you know, there's in the middle, there's something, how I live this psalm out in my life And none of them are really all the same. When you look at this to begin with, there is a, uh, what it does and what it doesn't say about us. I want us to see that there is something that that we have to understand about this psalm. I look at my life and the people around me, and many times (laughs) I, uh, I am guilty of being what I would call a, a cultural believer. A cultural believer. What that means is that sometimes the decisions that I make, even the good and right decisions that I make, are not based on my relationship to God. They're, relate, they're based on my comfort level. We all have grown up in different cultures. You know, I I grew up in the Hager culture. That's my last name. The Hager culture is a bunch of farmers from Michigan. So if you know farmers from Michigan, the Hager culture is guns, hay bales, uh, milking hoses. That has a double meaning. You don't know, but we don't have time for that story. Uh, it, it has um, lots of sports and athletics, broken bones, cut off fingers, lots of trips to the emergency room, uh, horrible bad jokes. My, my whole family is bad at jokes. They just, they're all dad jokes. All dad jokes from everybody. You know, you could be 12 year old girl and you're telling dad jokes. That's the best you can do because you're in the Hager culture. Now, some of you grew up in a different culture than me completely. I moved from, uh, from you know, my Midwestern hometown down to the south, where I met my beautiful wife. And down in the south, they have a completely different culture. Sweet tea. 
I didn't think that was really supposed to be a thing until I moved down there. I, I like it. Biscuits and gravy. You know, there's things called grits. Yeah, they say it in plural, but it's actually just singular. There is no such thing as a grit. Just saying. I told you I'm bad at jokes. I can't do them. You know, it's cultural. Then I moved from South Carolina to New York City. Say, New York City. Hey, somebody's just as bad at jokes as me. There we go. I moved to New York City. Talk about a cultural shock. I went up there and it's tall buildings and smog and people, you know, you know, happily being mad at you. It's a weird, you know, yes, you can be happy and angry at the same time. And some people, they live for that happy, angry, whatever. But it was cultural. Now, all of us have a cultural identity that we're happy with, that we're comfortable in. And if I take you and move you to New York City, how comfortable are you going to be? I guarantee you, I already got some shaking heads. No, that ain't going to be the place for me. If I have to take you anywhere where there's more than seven stoplights in the town, some of you are going to be mad. You're like, the traffic here is horrible. You have to stop every once in a while. Some of you, if, you know, if I take you out of Danville and take you really to the boonies, because you don't know what it's really like to live in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, where all they've ever done is, you know, done coal, coal. That's another cultural that you know, we don't have time for that one either. You would be going mad. There's nothing to do. The culture drives you and it trains you and it tells you what and what you shouldn't do. And so you live your life based on cultural expectations. Anybody with me understand that? You know what, though? Part of my Hager culture was that I was in church the first Sunday that I was alive. My dad is a pastor. My grandfather, my great-grandfather was a radio preacher. I have about six generations of people preaching from pulpits and telling other people what the Lord says from the Word of God. And I tell you what, that there's some great, wonderful benefits to that that are ingrained in my heart. But I will also tell you this, that one of the struggles of that is that I, I deal with cultural Christianity as being motivation and not truly my relationship with the Lord. And the longer that you're a believer and the more comfortable you get around other believers, the more susceptible you are and other people are to a cultural expectation of Christian actions. And you get frustrated by the government, not because it's anti-God, it's anti-your cultural expectations. You get frustrated by the people you work with, not because they make choices to, to blaspheme, but because you just don't like their behavior and it makes you uncomfortable. Anybody with me? That cultural Christianity seeps in and now when I make decisions, I don't make them because I want to honor God. I make them because I'm honoring myself. What does that have to do with Psalm 91? When he starts this psalm, he uses two really powerful words here that identify us. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Can anybody identify one of the words? I saw somebody whisper it, dwell. The word dwell there is really, really interesting. 
The word dwell, when I think of the word dwell, I think of, you know, where I'm going to live. Well, when you go to the Greek, it has connotations talking about where you're going to settle, as if you were, you know, you were a settler on, on the early, you know, frontier. Where you were going to settle. But you know what else? The other connotation of this word has to do with who you're going to marry. It has to do with where you're going to settle down and build a house and be a couple and have a home. Build a family. You are settled with roots, with attachments, and you are ingrained there. Do you see a cultural dialect built into this word? I do. Did you know that God wants your culture to be ingrained with him and who he is? It's not necessarily a bad thing to have culture that wraps around God and intertwines with him. There's another word here that I find very, very interesting. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. This word is different because it doesn't have the same relational meaning to it. You know, we think of dwell and we're talking about who we're going to live with and who we're going to be around and, and where we're going to reside, right? When we're talking about abide, we're very location-oriented. And when you say that word or within the, the Hebrew context here, the, the word abide means stop and stay. Anybody ever raised puppies? I've, I've had the, the occasion to uh, train a couple of dogs to um, varying levels of success, we'll just say. But one of the first things that you train a dog to do is to sit and stay, right? You want that dog to, to stop moving at some points in their existence. And I wish that we could use the same training methods with kids. You know, here's a cookie. Sit, 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 sit. But you can't do that. It's just not politically correct. But it's one of those things. It's one of the earliest things. If you're a good dog owner, if you're a good pet rearer, for whatever context you want to use that, if you're good at it, you, your dog will stay. The other day we were at the park and uh, I had the kids all there and a lady comes walking up and the park has got the, the playground area of this park is fenced off. Anybody ever been over to Winter Park over here? The Ambuck section is all fenced off and one of the things on the signs it says there, no pets allowed inside, off leash. Well, this lady didn't even have a leash. No leash. She had this little Australian shepherd walking next door. No leash. She had, a, she had a training collar on it, so it was under control. But she walked over, told the dog to sit and stay outside the fence about 40 yards from the gate. She leaves that dog there, walks all the way inside, and is working with her kids. That dog's just sitting there watching. Does not move. You look at that dog and what are you thinking? Me as an individual, I'm saying, that's a really well-trained dog. And almost jealously, I'm like, I wish I had a dog. That, I wish I had a kid that could do that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, that's a really well-trained dog. It stops, it stays, it's got permanence, and it understands that it needs to be there. Almost to the point, and here's the interesting thing, this Hebrew word, almost in the negative, has the connotation of being obstinate. Like a mule. I'm here. 
I'm not moving. You can't make me. Because this is my spot. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not teasing you, but there is, there is a guy uh, in my dad's church. Well, he's not there anymore. He's dead. But <laughs> I will say this. The, the creases of his anatomy are still in the pew exactly where he sat every single Sunday. There was nothing you could do to move that man from that seat. Nothing. To the point of exhaustion when you're trying to do a children's program and you need him not to sit there for whatever reason, he wouldn't do it. It was a matter of principle to this guy that he was going to be in church and not only is he going to be in his church, he was going to be in his spot. And I mean, some of us have a spot. I know Pastor Matt sits here. This is where he's at. Whenever he's not up here, he's there. That's, it is. It's, it's where he's supposed to be. But that word abide, that's what it means. You're going to stop, you're going to stay, and you have got some firm grip on it. I say all that to come around to this thought. Where do you dwell? Let's think about this. Where do you dwell spiritually when circumstances of life aren't what you wish they were? Where do you abide emotionally when confrontation hits your life? Does anybody in this room have a sister? Where do you go when you're talking to your sister? Yeah. Some of you like your sister. We need to have a different example for you. Where do you go when it's your boss or your mean coworker or when somebody cuts you off while you're driving or when it takes too long for you to get your groceries through the aisle, or when somebody uh, is inconsiderate to you, or somebody, if you're a mother, messes with your kids. Where do you abide? Where do you dwell? And I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about the spiritual place, the spiritual attitudes. Where do you go when you're under stress. I have a besetting issue that I've dealt with my entire life. I get intermediate victories over it. I love food. And if I could solve every problem of the world with food, I would. When I feel uh, frustrated, I cook. When I feel anxious, I eat. Uh, anybody, anybody feel this way? I don't know. I'm not going to pick anybody out, but I'm, I'm there. Food is, a, food is a thing with me, and I use that as a crutch. 
I use it as a place to go. I use it as a place of refuge. I use it as a place of concealment and comfort and security. Does anybody here have a place of comfort and security that you go to? This is your place. When you're stressed, you go there. When you, when you get frustrated, this is what you go to. You have a place of comfort, a place of security. And do you have a place of comfort and security that's not God? I don't mean to put it like this, but I am. My issue with food is idolatry. Because it is what I use to replace God as my shield, as my refuge. We go through the rest of this, and you see in verse 2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom will I trust. The God in whom you place your refuge, that you put yourself under His protection, that you lay at His feet and say, God, you shield me. Is it truly God, or is it some construct that you have put up in your mind that makes you feel good? Quite honestly, if I'm going to get blunt, I fail. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, this is a struggle. Because we go to those default positions of security and those comfort points that we are accustomed to and that our flesh craves instead of going to the God who has promised to be our refuge. What this doesn't say about us as we start thinking about God and we start thinking about where we ought to be and who we ought to be the admonition of verse 1 does not give us comfort by just being present by just being culture. I, th I, I know that sometimes I want to read this verse in this passage and I want to look at it and say to myself, I fit this description of abiding and dwelling because I go to church every Sunday. Because I read my Bible pretty regularly. And then I pray. And, and I, I do stuff at church, and I even serve in my church. And, you know, I get chances to preach and do things like that. And that means that I'm abiding and that I'm dwelling. That's what that means. And I, I take that as security, but that's not what that passage means. When I am accurately dwelling in God and in his shadow, and in his refuge, when my kids frustrate me, I go to him. And you know what comes out of my life when I do that? Christ-likeness. The fruits of the Spirit. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. 
gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those things come out of my life when I'm dwelling, when I'm abiding. You know what comes out of my life when I go to my place and I'm frustrated? Anger, short-temperedness, frustration, anxiety, violence. Any of you understand this personally? What we think this means and what it really means are two different things. I want us to briefly take a comparison look at a different passage in the New Testament. If you can take your Bibles to John, the book of John, chapter 17, we have here the prayer of intercession where Jesus on earth is praying for his people. He's praying for the believers. Again, we're talking about a, a passage of Scripture that is focused on believers here. John chapter 17, I really want to start reading in, in verse 8. Now, I mean, there is a lot of meat in this, so I'm going to skip over some stuff that you may even have questions about or may just hit you. But look at verse 8, and I'm going to read from there. For I have given unto them, and this is a prayer of, of the God the Son, praying to God the Father. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. Now the pronouns that he's using here, them, he's talking about us, believers, his people, the, the ones who have a relationship with him. And they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. I want to stop here for a second. I want you just to think about this. If God is our place of refuge, what's the result? If God is my security, if he's my comfort, if he's the one that shields me, and you go back to Psalm 91, and you look at all the things that he's describing there, it's really easy to get a, a wrong idea about what this means. No, I, I actually ran into a church, and probably some of you have even seen these churches where they've got snakes in them, these rattlesnakes. And down, it's a really, you know, it's a southern culture thing. They go down there, and they, they believe, they take this passage that we just looked at in uh, verse 13 of Psalm 91. It says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under thy feet. And they basically say, take that passage, and they say, yeah, we can take out poisonous snakes and play with them, and we can, be, we can feel free to just mess around because we're going to be completely fine. And if we get bit and we're not going to, nothing, nothing bad's going to happen. Now, I'm just saying, don't do that. Uh, I have to be cautious about using certain words from the pulpit, but I'm using this one in all sincerity. That's stupid. Okay? That's a bad interpretation. 
It's wrong. It's wrong. Big power, big power word here. It's wrong exegesis, meaning that they didn't take that from the scripture. They, they started throwing stuff against the wall. And I go, that sounds pretty cool. I can start playing with snakes at church. Woo! Now, that's a cultural thing that people do. And, and they look at this passage and, and they interpret things so horribly wrong. And they think that this passage is saying that God's going to keep him. He, I mean, I'm going to have the best life ever. If I dwell and I abide, like this passage says, then nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. And my life is going to be great. There's a guy on the TV right now. And he's really popular. And he wrote a bunch of books about having your best life now. I'm just going to tell you, the only way that you get your best life now, and I'm borrowing this from somebody else, the only way you get your best life now is if you're an unbeliever and you die and you go to hell. That's the only way to get your best life now. Because my best life is in glory. Amen? And as I look at this passage and I realize that it is not about me getting my best life now. It's not about me having absolute peace and security and comfort in every single little thing that I want to do. And having no problems for the rest of my life. This passage is talking about me and my relationship with God and how I can have different things that make all of that mean less than it does to me now. Because it means too much to me now. We look at this passage and I look at what he says that God will do. What it doesn't mean is that God's going to make your life perfect. What, it, what does it mean? Look at verse 4. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. He is going to protect you. What is he going to protect you from? Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night. What is he going to be protecting you from? When you dwell and when you abide, what does he protect you from? You won't be afraid. Does he say that he's going to keep away the terror or the fearful things? No. Those are still going to come. You know, in John chapter 17 that we just read there, what did he say? He says, not that they, I'm, not, I'm not praying that you keep, take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil. He does not promise that he's going to remove all the circumstances and all the evil things that plague us. He says, I'm going to protect you from evil. He doesn't say that no more fearful things happen. He says... I'm going to keep you from being afraid in the middle of fearful things. Verse 6. Nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. He doesn't promise that all the fearful circumstances or all the conflicts are going to go away. He says that there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be pestilences. There's going, to be, there's going to be things that get in the way, circumstances that make our lives hard and difficult and frustrating, and they're going to, it's going to reek in us and build up in us a whole series of emotional responses. But what does he say that is going to happen? He said that the pestilence in, in that's going to be in the darkness or in the destruction, it's going to be there, and the people around you are going to fall 
And it caused other people to walk away. And it will cause other people to fail. But not you. And everywhere you look, you will see people crumbling from this. But not you. I work in a very secular environment. I'm the director of marketing and public relations for a general contracting company. And so what I do is I, I'm dealing with um, the rough, tough guys who their entire life has been built on building and being strong and being macho and doing, Ugh. you know, grunting every once in a while. And, and I just, I'm, I'm in the middle of this. That's, that's everything that's around me. Uh, if you've worked in the construction industry, there's, there's kind of a, a general sense of we've got to be strong all the time. You've got to be, you know, ready to flex your muscle. You've got to be ready to, to defend your honor. Honor. Uh, you got to, you know, got to de defend your, your construction company against the evils of the other construction companies around you. I, it's it's kind of weird. I mean, if you take construction, I, I just read a book um, recently, a fiction book on the time period where knights in armor and their ladies and their lords and, you know, pages and squires and all that kind of stuff. And I found it really funny because... Uh, I saw so many similarities to the court life, to construction. You know, you have, the, you have the ladies, and they're the ones who work in the office that everybody's trying to impress. Everybody is trying to impress the ladies in the office. And then you got the guys on the front line, and they're the pages. Those are the ones who actually have to do the work. Those guys are the pages and the squires, and they're getting told to do everything, and they grumble a lot. They do. They grumble a lot. And then you have... The knights. The knights are the inspectors and the owners. Well, the owners are more like the barons and, you know, the king, whoever, whatever. But the, the knights go out there and they, they come to the rescue of all the people, all the lost people who don't know how to fix their pipe. And they come out and they, they, try, to, they try to help them and, and they're the hero of the day. Oh, so, and I'm telling you, it's weird. It, do, it really does get weirdly similar where you see... People are just, anybody work in construction? How many of you, yeah, yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm yeah, it's, it's like that, it really is. I see a lot of you very skeptical, it's exactly like that. I used to be a knight. I was an estimator, I solved problems. I'm trying to, <clears throat> I'm just not knightly enough, and so I lost that job and took a job in public relations and marketing, so. Still working for the, the company, but as, I, as you do that, I, I, it's, it's so weird that all of these things are happening. And then out of nowhere, these guys, these knights, these ones that are infallible, something bad happens on a project, or something bad happens at home, and this guy who is all full of brawn and you know everything, he crumbles. He crumbles to nothing. And I'll tell you, 
in my own field, there is, it is so rampant with substance abuse and alcoholism. Uh, it's to the point now where I can't find candidates to work with me who, aren't, who can pass a drug test. Now, why do I say that? Because this passage just brought out the fact that the people all around you are crumbling and falling because they're not abiding and dwelling. And I want to tell you that even the strongest among you, the ones that you look up to, the ones that have all the answers, the ones who have the most skill, all of those who look around you, when they aren't dwelling and when they aren't abiding and they have to go to their own place of refuge, they will crumble and fall. It's just a matter of the circumstance hitting them yet. And it will. And there's nothing they can do to hide from it. Life hits everybody. And eventually, you're going to have to have a place of refuge that is more secure than your own imagined resource. Your own mental place of security. I have to have something stronger than food. When my family member dies. When my best friend dies. When my kids grow up and start rejecting authority. I have to have something more. And you do too. We go on, and I, I want to quickly get through the rest of this. Verse 8 in Psalm 91. Only with thine eyes thou will behold and see the reward of the wicked. The people who are doing evil around you are going to look like they're winning. Only with your eyes as you've abided and you've dwelled on God will you see that they're truly getting their reward. Verse 10, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. I will be with him. I will be with him. Let me say it again. I will be with him in trouble. God will be with you in the trouble. What it does promise is that you will have the security of God through conflict. You will have the security of God through fear. You will have the security of God when others around you fall. You will have security of God. Look at verse 16. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. The eternal security that you have as a believer should be your place 